0: privileged to work at the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. Uh, we are a non-profit, non-governmental organization established in 1983. Uh, we will next month have a 20th Annual Arab-U.S. Policymakers uh, Conference. Last year, some of you may remember, we had 1,009 registrants. That's an all-time record high for these kinds of things in the nation's capital. Uh, Though we're not a governmental organization, there's not a day that passes that we don't deal with issues pertaining to governance and political dynamics in the systems and structures pertaining to both. Uh, We are very much indeed focused on America's role in the world beyond our shores. Uh, We are not a corporation either, and yet no day passes without us being aware of the challenge of the private sector to keep this relationship (coughs) strong and continuously expanding and forever mutually beneficial and reciprocally uh, rewarding. Uh, We're not a university in the sense that uh, we don't give accreditation, and yet each and every day we try to be true to our educational mission, and this is to place this relationship on a firmer foundation than it has been. Than it is, and then it is likely to be unless enough good people, men and women on all sides, have worked to make this uh, accomplished. And so today is in that vein. We are here in the United States Congress, where we have taken more than two hundred and twenty-five members of Congress, their foreign policy and defense advisors, their legislative and communication affairs, uh, directors to one or more of the Arab countries. And we do what we can when possible uh, to follow up, to provide an ongoing cerebral massage uh, in terms of deepening their knowledge and understanding. And today is in that vein. We're focusing on Arabia and the Gulf and challenges for America and its uh, partners and its friends and its allies, as well as its adversaries and the non-committed in this particularly vital Strategic uh, part of the world. We have three individuals who have spent the bulk of their professional adult lives uh, specializing in this particular region. Uh, they are pioneers, they are pathbreakers. Uh, the founder of the Gulf Research Center, Dr. Abdulaziz Saka, will speak first, uh, followed by Christian Koch and followed by uh, Mustafa Al Ani. Each will speak for 10 minutes. And they will address issues of uh, importance in their perception in terms of Americans' need to know on policy-related issues. Uh, uh, Dr. Abdulaziz Asaka has a background as a business person, but he's also always been a crypto-academic and interested in in science and research and studies and publications. So he's the visionary of this organization that has front and center um, come to be the leading uh, policy-related uh, strategic survey think tank uh, in Eastern Arabia and arguably in the Eastern Arab world. Dr. Abdulaziz Saka
1: welcome you all. Thank you very much for coming. I understand Washington is a busy town, and uh, traffic sometimes not too But thank you very much for being with today. Let me thank. Uh, let me thank Dr. John Dukakis for organizing such a meeting like this. I think his idea was that we need a view from the region. To discuss about it, to go through And I ask him, Do I need to present an official paper? I said, No. Be yourself. Say what you want. Uh, you know, in the dashboard, room, and give us your thought: how do you see it from the region? What is happening? And what do you expect from the U.S.? And what is the U.S. role in that? So I said, you know, I'd be more than happy you know, to do that. So I'm very thankful to him to Mr. Lee for organizing such things. And uh, I'd very happy to be in Washington. I'm one of those that values a lot the Arab American nation. America is an important country for us in the Egypt. So sometimes, when an important country for you does something that you don't feel happy about, it has a mega impact on you. A small country, you know, you respect somewhere, you know, I mean, the globe does something that you don't like. You can live with that. But America does something for us really helps us. You know, the first time we heard the war, when New York sneezed, the rest of the world catch cold. I think in the region it could be in the morning, not only cold. So I think, you know, we understand the value of the US policy, and we just back to the region. This is why our comments uh, come from a heart immediately and say, you know, I will start by saying we do have a disappointment from the US policy, and a disappointment based on two things facing the issue of credibility, because there's a big question of credibility now in the U.S. And the credibility because many issues that are brought to be the U.S. are stick to the 10 and to answer your question. and the second is the credibility. The U.S. credibility has been mined because of the issue in Iraq. It was not in a, you know, a war of necessity, it was a war of the choice. And look at the result today, what do we have? Have the U.S. really achieved what they want? Now when they are withdrawing their capability from Iraq, is that as a result of a great achievement, of a great success, or there's still some success, but a lot of losses. A trillion dollar to achieve something is quite an easy loss in the U.S. And, you know, 80s of a great effort from the U.S. is not also a small thing to do there. But there is many issues that, you know, for us has a double, you know, double impact. Before we used to deal, with the Putin regime, with the dictatorship, nearby now, you have Iran and Iraq. Iran, you know, have a position in Iraq, so you have to deal with a you know, impact on us there. Afghanistan, yes, we understand it was a war of necessity. We understand that we both support the war against terrorism, and we all have been a great supporter in that one. But what is the outcome of that one? Are you a US withdrawal from there, so reducing your capability, or withdrawing your capabilities from there? we achieved what we want, or that also had a negative impact for us. It does have a negative impact, listen to us. Yes, it did serve certainty, but a lot of the issues that were aiming and hoping forward when this started Afghanistan have not been achieved. Containing Iran, the two issues that the US wanted to contain, the proliferation program in Iran, the nuclear program, and not to be militarized, and the interventionist policy have not been achieved. Iran today is still active. And with Hezbollah in Lebanon, Iran is still active and involving in Iraq, extreme days from Hamas, with many other places, in Yemen, and, you know, I, was, I always gave the example, in Mauritania, when after the election, the first visit by a foreign minister, when well, the Iranian foreign minister visiting Mauritania, so they spared no effort to continue having that interventionist policy, into you know, to, to, to that. So the two key issues for us, the nuclear program, and the interventions policy have not been contained and dealt with. And as a result of the US policy, we are suffering from that. And then we have a lot of question marks. Where it is going, what are the points of agreement, what are the points of disagreement that they have in that way. And the most important current issue today is what is going to happen next week in, in, in the United Nations. Is the Arab-Israeli, is the Palestinian-Israeli the conflict there? And what is the position of the U.S.? I mean, a lot of people, they find it quite difficult to understand. You support humanity, you care for the people, you have done a lot of effort for the people. Is there a difference between the people in Tunisia and the people in Palestine? And, If you are supporting a program or an idea that was initiated, that it was part of the U.S. policy, the two-state solution, it was the U.S. idea, it was not somebody else's idea. And we all went for it, and we all supported it, and we all thought you should go. Today, when you have a preemptive for that, by, you know, saying ahead of the schedule, if it would be, we will lead to that, that has created a sort of a major disappointment. And my words here, that this will make you lose the thing whatever you have achieved as a support, as a love by the people, because the Arab Spring, by the way, there was no American flag as being built. You know, the traditional myth about America supporting the dictatorship, the America supporting that, and America doing that, it's not here. This is a domestic movement (coughs) from the inside in the airport that have led to this sort of revolution and these changes. Now, this is why U.S. was very well positioned. They may have gone through, Are reluctant, you know, wait and see, watch and see. But in the end of the day, they have done the right thing to support the people. Now that support you have done for the people, and that credibility you have gained, you're going to lose it because of the Palestinian-Israeli issue by not supporting. But you have stated as part of the policy here. Now, this is some of the key issue here as far as the capability. Only on the capability. We never wanted you to invade Iraq. You know, we thought, you know, maybe there is a political, there is a security dimension, there's a lot. But since this, you know, situation has taken place in Iraq, the fast withdrawal will create a vacuum in the region. So the, the whole job security issue will be at the stake. It's who's going to secure security. And remember, you know, still 40% of the of the global energy comes from the there, and, you know, there's a huge importance in that world. So if, if we look at the, 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 the the current situation today do I want the U.S. a weak U.S.? do I want a humiliated U.S.? do I want injustice and unfair U.S.? do I want uh, this U.S.? No. I want the U.S. that believe in all its values you know, the people of the United States you know, have this strong belief inside and they have a lot of firm justice inside of them. I don't want to see that negative image there because of the you know, the that you have said this is why you are so important to us, and you a wrong decision or uh, an adequate decision or a late decision we be taken in Washington has a great impact on us, and that great impact will really affect and affect big time. We show our commitment. I mean, most of the Arab countries still, the oil producer country, keep, uh, you know, selling the oil in dollar, they keep depositing their dollar in the... And G bills they still have not decided to reallocate their investments, so their investment remains very important. They have constantly maintained a reasonable oil policies that you know goes with the trend and with the US thinking to you. So they have not done something severely out of that side. But at the same time they feel that sort of of, of uh, disappointment. Now Summarizing it in a way, because I think I'm sure there are many issues that have be more than happy to address it to the United Arab Spring, the Gulf-Egypt, economic uh, relations, and uh, you know, whatever you may have in that way. Summarizing it, I wish to overcome the situation of the disappointment. I wish that you to this deceived a much more solid policy decision to be uh, taking in, in a lot of those issues that you have mentioned. Greater cooperation and greater coordination between the two will lead to a much better understanding. I was you know, very pleased to see some of the US official they were in Riyadh yesterday and touring the region there trying to get you know, some of the issues you know resolve them. Uh, but without that we might be entering into a cold era. And the last Thing that we need to have a cold era between the, the, the Arab countries and the United States of America. So we value that, we shall not evaluate the decision here. So I can stop at this point if you want. Yes, that's fine. Thank so, you. So i have not
0: decided by the no, that's, not that's, my time. No, that's fine. That's really the that. we're on schedule here. Uh, next would be Dr. Christian Koch. And they are on the uh, yeah. uh, chairs, I believe, uh, four by six cards that we oh, invite you oh, to write oh, oh. down to your questions. Uh, be more succinct uh, to it, and too much avoids uh speech making from the floor mm-hmm. long with a commentary <coughs> from the galleries there and it allows more questions uh, to be asked uh, and hand them to any uh just hold them up in one of our staff members collect them and
2: bring them forward. Yes, uh, Thank you.
3: Um, Well thank you very much John. Let me first of all just uh, personally also thank you and Pat and the team uh, for reacting very quickly when we said we were coming to Washington and the immediate willingness to uh, provide us a forum and and host us and and give us this opportunity. It's definitely a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to pick up a little bit on some of the themes that uh, that I think already mentioned. And specifically I want to sort of highlight uh, a growing awareness among the Arab states uh, about the position they find themselves and an increased willingness to act on that. I think you can actually argue that what we've seen over sort of the last five to ten years has been the emergence of a, of a real uh, national interest approach by the GCC states themselves. Uh, to define what really uh, their positions, to be ready to act and put forward initiatives and proposals, uh, and in that sense sort of to take uh, matters a little bit uh, into their own hands. And I think you really see this coming out of three components. Um, the first is, is really what he's already <coughs> mentioned is uh, uh, this feeling of uh, increased uh, uncertainty about what U.S. policy uh, in the region is, the feeling that the U.S. is, is losing strength, is, is maybe losing a level of resolve is is, is losing a little bit of strategic focus Uh, that's the first factor the second to me and I will go in in a very little details into into each one of these uh, is I think the growing consciousness and maturity within the gulf itself Uh, finding out that uh, you have nothing to hide you can go out and stake your positions and and pronounce these with a degree of confidence Um, And I think the third factor has also been the the rise of other regions of the world, looking a little bit more uh, concentrated on the Gulf and what the Gulf means to them. Uh, No longer just looking uh, at the Gulf as just a part of the broader Middle East, but looking at the Gulf specifically uh, as an important sub-region that uh, also demands greater attention by them. Um, So the first is really this idea of, of U.S. weakness and uncertainty. Which I really think did come about with the decision in 2003 to go to war in Iraq. at uh, uh, least mentioned, there was no doubt about uh, what we what was considered to be a, uh, a war of uh, necessity in Afghanistan. But when it came to Iraq, there was a strong feeling that this was a war unnecessary. Uh, really, why why was there this decision made uh, at the time? And I think it's even coupled worse with the fact that. Uh, when the Arab states themselves uh, spoke to officials in Washington and, and there's a, always a frequent exchange and, and uh, they would try to uh, pronounce some of their feelings of uncertainty and unease about uh, where the U.S. Uh, was heading uh, or at least to sort of say, well, if we we'll do decide to go in there, then please make sure that we do one, two and three in the immediate aftermath and that none of these things were we'll listened to. I mean, it was completely ignored, it was sidelined, uh, and there was a feeling, well, uh, you d- just didn't care about what the GCC position uh, was on, on some of these things. So there's a the sense simply that the, the U.S. became more of an importer of insecurity in the region rather than security, um, and I think that opened a little bit the eyes of the region among the policy officials and the government officials themselves, and caused a little bit of a re-examination of, of, of the cost-benefit analysis. When it comes to relations with the US. Uh, moreover, there was then the sense, well, that really all the past approaches that the US had attempted when it comes to regional security had not really produced uh, uh, much of a positive impact. We've gone through the, the many different stages the twin pillar policy, the uh, balance of power, uh, a dual containment approach, uh, back to sort of this outright hegemony that uh, came in place after 2003. Uh, But none none of the real bottom line uh, factors that uh, produce Gulf insecurity were resolved. Uh, The situation seemed to go continuously sort of down the hill. Um, So I think all this, again, combined with the feeling that the GCC states weren't really engaged uh, productively by the U.S. uh, I mentioned Iraq. but. there was always this feeling that even when it came to possible uh, talks with the Iranians, that uh, the GCC wasn't informed what the the status of the discussion was, that maybe we'd wake wake up one day and uh, the two of Iran had decided on a grand bargain. uh, And we'd find out, you know, through the newspaper, what the result would be at the end of the day. Uh, And I think that frustration overall has been simply maintained over time. And you see it on the many different fronts. The uh, yeah, Israeli really issue where we simply don't see uh, seriousness uh, or, or putting forward and then trying to implement the policy that's been pronounced by the U.S. Uh, two sides uh, of on one point here. Uh, on Iraq again, this idea now of, uh, of a quick withdrawal, uh, what about the stability of Iraq in the long term? Uh, Libya, where uh, the U.S. seems to take a bad role, uh, honorable roles lust of a uh, list of other uh, issues. So here the GCC really found themselves struggling to fill the void uh, in that. That idea of the U.S. sort of weakness and frustration in the region combined with really uh, a greater readiness by the Arab Gulf States to engage with a sense of confidence uh,
1: that they could be
3: productive. I mean, the idea here is when the GCC was founded as an organization and in 1981, uh, most of the epitaphs were written by the way. It was an organization so the to die. Uh, nobody gave it much uh, sense that it was going to last for a long time, uh, the, the feeling that uh, sooner or later uh, it would come to an end. Uh, but here we are today, and we do find that the, basically the GCC has survived it all. Uh, it the only functioning, uh, really functioning really functioning Arab regional organizations start out there. Uh, we survived the turmoil of the 80s, uh, the wars of 1990, 2003, uh, all the other uncertainty with the periodic crisis that we've seen back and forth, and here we are the GCC still standing. Uh, and not only that, it's not uh, only standing, I mean, I think we've seen tangible progress over time. We've seen uh, deepening integration. Uh, I mean, again, you can, you can argue that maybe the integration isn't as, as deep as hoped for, but there's been progress. Uh, You've seen the customs union that's in place. Uh, GCC nationals and citizens can work in each other's country. Uh, there's uh, free travel. Uh, the common market is being planned. Uh, we have a railroad, a railroad ne- network being looked at, an electricity grid that's now connected for the countries and only two are missing, but it's very functional. Uh, idea of the GCC uh, Defense Pact. Uh, so I think overall you have these growing overlapping institutions leading to better integration. Uh, you also have a lot more frequent consultations among the states themselves at all levels. At head of state, as at minister level, at, at working level within the different ministries. Whether it's judiciary, education, environment, energy, uh, there's a lot of exchange going on and back and forth. And I think all of this sort of has combined to create a greater sense of consensus, Uh, more common ideas being put forward. A feeling that uh, you know, certainly, you had something that you could show for. And of course, all this also combined with the great economic development that we saw, uh, you know, from 2003 onwards. oil prices took a spike in tremendous visible progress that you really see in, in the Gulf states themselves. Uh, so all this combined to say, you know, we have a lot to lose, we have a lot to work for, but we also need to get out there and stake our own position to protect some of those interests that we have, to protect what's been built up over the previous uh, 10 to 20 years. Um, and then the third factor is sort of this increased attention also by outsiders. I mean, you do see it with Europe to some degree, uh, you have a European Security Strategy in 2003 that begins to mention the Gulf. Uh, you have a 2004 document on partnership with the Middle East, the Mediterranean and the Gulf region. Uh, you have NATO's involvement through the Istanbul Cooperation Initiative. Uh, uh, you even have on GCC-EU, we have a better institutional relations, uh, resulting most recently in the 2010 Joint Action Program which now specifically defines 14 areas of cooperation in which the EU and the GCC want to uh, work together. Uh, so Europe is definitely looking to the Gulf separately as just being the Gulf, rather than just seeing it as, as the Middle East. Asia, of course. I mean, Asia is, the, is, the, is where the majority of the oil exports from the region uh, go to. And uh, there's concerns among the Asian countries, of course, about their own energy security. Uh, Japan depends almost 90% on, on oil imports. Uh, China is already about 70 and rising, uh, India is 15% and also rising. Uh, and most of that energy comes from the Gulf, so there's a concern here about stability. Uh, we see uh, the Gulf states themselves taking actions. Uh, the UAE signing with Korea to impact on nuclear corporation. Uh, despite the fact that you had the US and France also trying to buy for the contract but it went to the South Koreans. You see increased political visits here. Yeah. When King, Aftar, King Abdullah first uh, ascended to the throne, he went to India and China uh, as his first official visit. Uh, and you see a lot of others uh, from
2: the Gulf uh, going out and, and uh,
3: visiting the key countries in Asia uh, and vice versa. And you even have uh, a view towards areas such as Latin America and Africa. African food security becoming I'm increasingly important. Uh, Latin America, the UAE, did a concerted effort when it wanted the, the headquarters of the International Center for Renewable Energies to be in Abu Dhabi. Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed, the UAE, went to 14 Latin American countries to engage them proactively, to convince them of why the center should be in the UAE, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So you really see this combination of uh, attention from the outside and activism from the world itself. Um, so what does it all mean? I mean, I think certainly we're looking at a changing strategic landscape, overall, where the Arab Gulf states are determined to play a more proactive role, uh, where they are more ready to defend their own national interests, uh, and a greater assertion of those interests. Uh, now, I do have to caution a little bit. I mean, we're not talking about an immediate shift here. This is not something that's going to happen tomorrow, uh, necessarily. And I think there are still strong fundamentals out there, and a strong U.S. GCC relationship uh, and many areas that are working. Uh, this combined with of course also sort of a lack of alternatives. I mean, Europe and Asia don't have the many times the capability or even the willingness uh, to take on many of the functions that the US is currently in the region. But nevertheless, I just see this as sort of uh, increasingly pointing toward the direction where the US-Gulf relationship is known longer necessarily built on Positives, but more of a negative uh, denominator in terms of there being uh, being built because there's no other alternatives. Uh, and I think that's something to think about uh, and look at uh, and understand that there is that shift going on. And I'll leave it there. Super question. Uh,
0: first speaker, uh, Mustafa Alani. Um, we're going to have questions on cards.
4: Uh, at the end of the this coming speaker, and then uh, the record will be brought up and um, I'll ask the questions that way. Please um, write your question out. Thank you very much, uh, John. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very, very much for, for the effort and, and this, uh, this session. Uh, you see, what the Arab been going to doing in the United States is a very important uh, issue. What we see seen. You know, for the last 40 or 50 years uh, the support of United States of dictatorships the trade stability for the freedom
2: and democracy
4: and stability was more important than the people's freedom and human rights and, uh, and uh, the democratic system we understand why the United States was doing that and in the past we have one style of changing government. It's military coup. And the military coup, you know who wants to rule the country. Uh, you have a rough idea, especially a, a, a super uh, army officer. You have, you have some ideas. You know, we have a revolution without revolution. The people who have uh, done the revolution in Egypt, uh, they are not in power. We have a faceless revolution. But we have a real revolution. And this is the first time in the history, in the the Middle East possibly, we have the uh, popular uprising as a means of changing regime. So what is the impact of this on the United States? I can identify two issues here. The United States is going to face difficulties with the new regime emerging as a result of this revolution. The first, we are going to witness a, a major change, restructuring of decision making. In the past, you know, the either U.S. president or, or, or the secretary of the state can walk in a room with the president and sign anything they want. If they want a military base, if they want something, I think we're going to witness a major, major shift in that. The new foreign policy, and especially relation between the United States and this new emerging uh, uh, regime, going to have a popular uh, influence. If you look at the constitution suggested in Egypt or Tunisia, or even now in Morocco, and Europe, no longer the leader of, of, of the state or the, 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 the question they have to go to the parliament. And here we're talking about the same argument which used by the Israeli for the last 40 years. You know, we cannot take decision because the, the, the people against this policy. Now we're going to hear it from the Egyptian, from the Tunisian, from the Libyan, and possibly from other country. So the, the easy day for United States to walk in a room and, sign, and let the dictator sign any paper you want, it is over. It is over. And the new leadership will not in need need for U.S. legitimacy. They can't survive without U.S. legitimacy. And that it could be actually a bonus for them that the U.S. legitimacy is not one of the instruments which in their legitimacy. So the question here is complete shift in the in the in the uh, stru- in the structure of decision making, and will have impact on our relations, uh, on oil pricing, possibly. on uh, uh, the whole issue, investment, uh, security. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's a completely different uh, set. The second thing they have, the U.S. have to understand: political Islam will have a say in the foreign policy, <coughs> whether you will like it or not. Actually now, if you look at the who leading or who going to be very active in Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Yemen, uh, Syria, political Islam is re-emerging, whether it's extreme Islam or moderate Islam, Muslim Brotherhood or Salakis. So again, this is a, a major issue for United States policy in the region. And those people will basically either review the previous policy, and they will look ser- seriously on any agreement or any 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 uh, new chapter with the United States. Yeah. So basically, this is the, the two issues, and I, I will stop here, and, and let's open the floor so we will be happy to take questions. Thank
0: you, all three, for staying within your time limits uh, there. And um, I asked the uh, cards that have been written out with questions to be brought forward. Uh, here, um, amongst the the early ones that have been brought forward, um, two days ago, in royal Highness uh, Prince uh, Turkey uh, El Faisal uh, and Abdulaziz El Saud uh, wrote a provocative, uh, attention-getting editorial uh, talking about. Should the United States proceed to veto the Palestinian quest for uh, accelerated status and rights and privileges in the United Nations, would that would be a cost further than there have already been to the United States in terms of its credibility and capabilities from the region. Would uh, any of the panelists care to comment on whether uh, this is uh, as serious as? Being been made out to me, whether it's uh, simply a statement for the record uh, information of interest that the uh, authors and those behind the
1: authors wish uh, to have uh, taken into serious consideration. But again, I think this goes with the same, uh, you know, outline and stated. This is a disappointing situation because, again, this will be lacking back. He's somebody who knows like, been the United States very who's been educated in the United States, loves the United States. He's here nowadays. He spent part of his time you know, touring around and also attending a lot of the conferences here. And so when he writes something like this, this is a reflection from back home about how disappointed is the people in general and makers from issues that the U.S. have not addressed and the way how we see it from that end. So I think... Uh, he, he, it was not just himself you know, writing about it. I think it was more of a reflection of yeah. how he saw the people, because he was in Riyadh those last uh, couple of years, and I'm sure he met with a lot of people in his school. and, 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 and he saw that as a reporter. and maybe he wanted to enlighten. And, you know, bring you to the knowledge of the people of America to the you know, decision maker, policy-makers in this country. And uh, this is, a, you know, a, a region, countries that, you know, they value the relation. You know, we understand that they want to pay for the U.S. force, and we are very thankful for that. We are very thankful for the effort that, you know, the United States and its army have put to, to you know, to protect the region and so on. So because of that, all, you see somebody like him also trying to preserve or keep that good relation in place by saying, as a friend of the United States, maybe I should write it, maybe I should put it through, maybe somebody will read it and take it, and not just, um, you know, an article for the sake of an article or an opinion for the sake of the opinion. All right, Um, thank you. and the others want to add to
0: that? uh, Yes, uh, you see, uh, the
4: question here is really, you have to remember King Abdullah, was not a friend of the United States, not new. He had a different view of the United States from King had the previous King. And for another, he changed his mind since he came here. Gradually, he changed his mind. And think that U.S. is a reliable. Uh, now he is. And uh, I'm facing major uh, disappointment when the Arab initiative originally for team 2 state resolution started as a Soviet initiative. It started as the King Abdullah initiative. So you have to understand the psychology. The question in Saudi Arabia is very simple. Why are we playing a moderate role in poverty? Why we try to reduce or maintain the prices of oil? Were the Iranian pushing for 300? Were the bin were the previous uh, regime in Medellin? Why, what the reward for? Them? This is very simple question, what the reward? The reward is not financial. The reward must be
3: equality. And we don't see this reward. If I could just add one point on that, uh, I mean, we also have to counter the notion that far from uh, these countries just being authoritarian regimes, I mean, they have to respond to the public opinion uh, in their country. Uh, so I think this is also sort of a warning. I mean, what you know, if the U.S. decides to go that way, uh, the regimes have to listen to what the public also means, the public opinion, out there. Uh, and we could face an increasingly hostile situation on that front. Uh, there were some protests and, and, and this is something also has a warning on it. See what could happen in, in that case. So the public opinion is
0: important and it has to be very We can maybe go more micro on, on, on this thing that you've been answering and addressing. Um, so uh, roll three questions into one. To what degree have the Gulf uh, states taken on board the lessons of the Arab Spring, uh, particularly the popular demand for greater participation in governing and uh, enhance uh, role, position and influence of youth in that uh, governing process. Um, and then more microscopically, if the United States fails to support the democratic aspirations of the people of Bahrain, <clears throat> will it lose yet more legitimacy and power uh, in the Standing in the Arab world and related to that, can you reflect on the U.S. role with the unrest caused by some groups in Bahrain, given that these groups in some instances are pro iranian origins origin or orientation?
1: I think uh, the position of the Gulf is very clear. We're not going to go back Days before January 2011, October. There's a new social contract. and There is an awareness that it's not going to be managed and run say, in all the same old way. That's established. And you can see it in the way how many issues have been responded. I will take before Bahrain being the example of Oman, when there was a protest from the Omani side. Immediately, the government responded by job creation of 50,000, increasing the salary, and addressing the issues. The other GCC country, and this shows the unified in opposition there because they see a common interest for them, have immediately pledged 20 billion dollar support for Oman and Bahrain to support their economy and to do it. Now, does this economics reward will stop people from continuing their political demand? No, political demand will be there, but I think. The big difference in the Gulf region than other area, there is no question about the legitimacy of the regime. The question always about good governance. people they wanted to see more participation, they wanted to see the transparency, the filtering down of the economy to that and so on. And this has a much more value for the people uh, in, in the region. They don't want, uh, you know, at the base of the Swedish democratic system to be imposed in the there. It's two different situations, two different Relation between the people and the ruling family, and so on, that. So, looking at that, you know, this addresses the issue of yes, there's an awareness within the leadership. It changes is taking place, and it will be gradual rather than fast, because uh, again, we have been taken by surprise in the region as a people and as government as much as the U.S. also been taken by surprise, even the French ambassador in Tunis was taken by surprise. I mean, the French ambassador wrote <coughs> a nice telegram to his foreign minister saying, no, everything is perfect. So I think everybody was taken by surprise with what's happened there. That, uh, uh, that sort of reform step, yes, we start seeing part of the of, I mean, we start seeing also some in Kuwait, in Saudi Arabia, there was a huge, a big, a big financial reward and practice to support that, without neglecting, the people wishes and right of more participation. More participation to establish the mechanism. Some, can, some of the countries don't have the mechanism. Some of the countries like Bahrain, there is a mechanism of that. And in the Kingdom of Bahrain, I think I will, I will describe it the following. When there was a decision by the GCC uh, uh, to have uh, a security support on the Bahrain side, I think that was based on three issues. It's a legitimate request by the Kingdom of Bahrain from the from the from the Peninsula Shield Force. Yeah, they have a unilateral and multilateral agreement between the countries in the GCC. And third, you uh, know they are part of the Peninsula Shield. So this is part of the forces where the Bahraini participate. That intervention of the forces in Bahrain was not against the people demonstration or dealing with the Bahraini people. It was very much focused on. Securing a critical facility, which is very important—electricity, power plant, uh, oil refinery, harbor, and so on—supporting the government. They were too busy in handling the issue. What is the difference in Bahrain and other countries? I think it's very simple. In Bahrain, it is not a national movement; it's a sectarian movement. Have been supported and endorsed politically and media-wise by the by by outside, which is basically Iran. You don't have to be a genius, except. Look at both al Manar TV and Al-Alam TV, which is both in Arabic, supported by the Iranian, and you will see the message that they're trying to get across to the people. So the Bahrain situation from that one, honestly, the the statement in the beginning that came from Secretary Gates at that time created a lot of confusion in the region, and it was heavily used by the Iranian at that time to show that, look at, the U.S. is also supporting uh, that. I think, a better understanding, the dialogue is there now. Have the dialogue achieved everything the Bahraini want? Not yet. But were they there? Yes, they were in Alufaq, which is the biggest Bahraini political party. They have 18 members out of 40 in the council. They could have used, you know, a civilized way of presenting all the requirements. So what we have seen there in Bahrain, maybe a quick reaction, flame motivated and supported by the outside. I think once they just settled, we're going to see the Bahraini government themselves, you know, bringing a lot of acceptable changes for both side uh, and, and that side. Um, uh, uh, There's
0: there substantial interest in Bahrain, and um, Mustafa, and question if you'd like to add to what Abdulaziz said, and consider these uh, additional questions there. Um, what Bahrain? we'll see a situation in which Bahrain would actually close the United States naval base there in an extreme circumstance and if so what would be the implications of that Um, with regard to the sectarian aspect of Bahrain uh, would any of you wish to elaborate on that in the sense that whereas before the invasion of Iraq the estimated proportion of Iraq's population that was Shia was 60 percent. In Bahrain, it's substantially more than that. So, um, is um, their game plan on how to deal with this sectarian aspect? And as much as all of the GCC heads of state and governments are overwhelmingly Sunni, but in this one instance, the population is overwhelmingly Shia. Um, and then related was how significant is Saudi Arabia's investment in United States, informing the U.S. Uh, stance on Bahrain, in other words, ranked against other critical factors and events, where does the uh, Saudi Arabian
2: um, weight in the United States factor in U.S. policy making, decision
0: making, or attitude, explanation, the uh, Bahrain, whether it's changed its position, or been silent, or seemed to tilt towards the
4: uh, GCC countries? First, we don't have any statistics to indicate uh, the division between Shias and the you know, uh, Yes, definitely uh, the Shias constitute a uh, majority, but what sort of majority? Because we have the and we the leading Shias party in Bahrain was occupying 18 seats out of 40 seats in the Bahrainian the, in the, in the Parliament. So they, they have their representation. They have, but you have to understand, Bahrain is uh, the fault line between between the Gulf State and which It is the <coughs> confrontation line. I give you the history: Bahrain was claimed by uh, by, by Iran until the independence of Bahrain in 1972. and the UN was at that time settled the issue by uh, the Shah accepted that, that, that Bahrain must be an independent state. So we have long history of, of uh, 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 ambition, Iranian ambition over Bahrain. The Shia is you see, in, in Bahrain is not necessarily, they have, they have their loyalty to Iran. The majority, actually, of the Shia in Bahrain, they are linked to Iraq more, more than Iran, whether in religious uh, relation or even in, in terms of tribal uh, but we have here problem, because the latest movement, and even before that, in the 70s, 80s, I was in London, and I was in the security side of, of in London, and we know that the most active part of the Shia opposition, supported fully by Iranian intelligence. This is not a secret, you, and we know each one of them at that time, and how they received support. I didn't understand. I'm not saying they are doing something wrong because always when you are in a position and, and you are isolated, you, you accept help from, from, from other countries. But this link put a lot of question mark on the, the movement in uh, Bahrain. Putting the Iranian ambition, putting the, the, the fact that at once between the 70s and the 90s, this was a violent movement. They used a lot of terrorist tactics. Uh, a lot of people were killed during that, this operation. So I cannot really compare what happened in Bahrain or what's happening in Bahrain with what happened in Egypt or Tunisia. this It is a movement from a certain sector of the opposition, well-organized opposition. Yes, definitely, no one denied that Bahrain had a desperate need for, for reform. This is no one, one argued. So the question is this reform under this sort of pressure, and there is a, a, some sort of uh, uh, external dimension. This is what it means. It's really what it means. Because it will have, uh, have a huge impact on the, of the other Gulf as well. So you see that the, the Iranians give no right for their own people, but they asking the, the, that Bahrain should give right for, for, the, uh, for, the, for the certain part of, of the society. And again, I mean, the Bahrainian must be treated fairly, uh, justly, no doubt about that. Uh, The question of uh, the American base in Bahrain, okay, the worst case scenario that you have a pro-Iranian regime in Bahrain. Whether the the group, the pro-Iranian group, going to control the, the, uh, the parliament, the democratic process, or we're talking about a takeover
2: definitely the, the, the future of the U.S. basis in Bahrain going to be questionable.
4: This is a major of the, the Iranian since the revolution with more major objective on this basis, in, whether in Qatar or in Bahrain. So, definitely, the, 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 the future of these sort of facilities will be uh, under uh, question. Uh, the issue of U.S., what the U.S., uh, the, the Saudis have influence in the U.S.? Actually, not a lot of influence. Yes, okay. I mean, investment, uh, oil. The major issue here, it is not what the U.S., uh, what the Saudis have influence of U.S. What the interests of U.S., in, in the whole Arab country, in the whole Arab world, the, the, the question of Palestine is not a, 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 a Saudis issue. It is a regional issue. And the, the whole U.S. image going to undermine if the U.S. took a decision, especially on the 23rd of September, by vetoing the, 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 the two-state solution. This is not only the Soviet issue. Yes, the Soviets will leave the fight. But as I said before, I have a very simple question. Why I'm defending your interest to lower oil prices? Our, uh, higher oil prices will bring every, every benefit for me to the Soviets' uh, economy. I am putting a break on, on other countries, the extremist in-op to protect our interests. So, definitely, this is the easiest way to give away, to give up this sort of pressure. And let prices, you know, settle on the, on the I have spare capacity, I can pay for them, very easily. I have four million spare capacity. I, I can influence prices the way I want. Um.
3: Maybe just a short comment on Bahrain and then one on his uh, idea of lessons of the Arab Spring. Uh, certainly I think in Bahrain, uh, we have to remember that the, the protests uh, deteriorated quite quickly and it was basically also something hijacked with Bahrain. It wasn't just uh, a demand for greater transparency, uh, better governance, better economic opportunities. It quickly came up to be first demand for a constitutional monarchy, uh, and then even demands for the establishment of an Islamic republic uh, in Bahrain. So well, there was a real concern, I think, also on behalf of the BCC states that the Bahrain monarchy could fall, it could collapse, and what implications does that then hold? Uh, so uh, I think it's important to, to you know, there needs to be a more inclusive uh, political uh, dialogue. Uh, but the fact that uh, are in position by the opposition that very little uh, room uh, uh, for uh, dialogue at one point. Uh, uh, so I think we need to go back now and then see uh, how to, to, to get this dialogue uh, uh, back on track so that actually progress can be made uh, on the political the, uh, But there has to be something we need to talk about. Um, I think in terms of some of the lessons of the Arab Spring, I think we shouldn't just forget that uh, there has been an, an ongoing reform process and there have already <laughs> in many of the GCC states. We've seen increased institutionalization <coughs> over the years. We've seen increased number of elections uh, for parliaments, for municipal councils, uh, for other various mechanisms. We've seen actions on judicial reform, uh, on reforming education systems, uh, on trying to institute different ways of greater transparency, accountability, uh, uh, bringing in uh, institutions in the state that look into uh, uh, clamping down on corruption. Uh, so it's not just a static system that uh, suddenly, uh, you know, with the coming of the, uh, the protests in January, 2011, that suddenly it's, it's, it's a whole new bargain. I mean, there was already a recognition among uh, many of the GCC leadership that, <coughs> that some reform was going to be necessary. Uh, and I think I absolutely agree with Abdulaziz now that least, you know, the, the events of this year uh, have put that uh, more urgency uh, behind uh, a more substantive and, and faster ongoing reform process. Uh, but it's certainly, I you, you can argue that uh, the system has been completely unresponsive, for that we haven't seen any kind of uh, reform taking place, uh, even in the years before that. Uh, given the fact that there are a number of representatives of Congress here, and their staff and committee at A's, um some of this will be a little
0: repetitious. However, it's um, a value in terms of trying to summarize and give priorities. Uh, Two-fold question. What are the um, top five policy recommendations that the three of you would share with the Obama administration to improve the US-GCC relationship in the coming year? (coughs) Uh, And after we do that, what top five policy priorities are the GCC countries prepared to advance
1: in terms of enhancing its geopolitical relationship with the United States in at yes. The first one. It's easy. I think the point that i mentioned before with regard to the key issues in the region are concerned. I mean, we do have a concern about Iraq. We do have a concern about Iran. And. Let's, let's take, for instance, an example in mean, Iran, when I mentioned the both issues, which is the, the proliferation and the, new, the militarization of the nuclear program in Iran, and how do we contain Iran? Is the economics and political embargo worked in Iran? Have we seen enough results out of that one? Do we need to do more? You know, how can we jointly pressure, other countries like China, and Russia to work together on that issue, not to extend any additional support to Iran and that because again, this is one of our biggest worries. it should be also a biggest worry for the US. That having a, a nuclear militarised program in Iran should be a priority there. The question of Yemen and the whole situation in Yemen and the determination, Yemen is not anymore a regional responsibility. It is an international responsibility. And this is why we feel we you know working together to bring stability in Yemen there. I think we need to work out together in Egypt if, you know, the region, the GCC USA, and, and, and the U.S. work together in Egypt, I am sure you know, we can bring a lot of stability in Egypt, or, you know, we can bring a lot of, uh, you know, a much better result than you uh, are not going to see a quick Iranian delegation coming from Iran to visit Egypt immediately after the revolution and to try to enhance the relation. This is could due to the lack of the non presence of both, we have seen a very hostile, uh, uh, attitude toward the new U.S. ambassador in Cairo, which I feel very sorry for that. She has nothing to do with the ambassador. She's a great lady and uh, extremely knowledgeable, but at the same time, the attitude has taken place there you know by the people need to be you know revisited. So, um, Afghanistan, you know the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I will absolutely call for an international conference in Afghanistan and getting every party together: get the U.S., get the Russian, the Chinese the organization, Islamic conference, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, all parties involved in the issue of Afghanistan because the internationalization solution to Afghanistan have not really worked. The military approach did not work. And I'm very pleased that today there is, an, a, a, you know, a differentiation in the in, in foreign, in the U.S. foreign policy toward Afghanistan. They differentiate between the uh, 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 Afghani home, the against an extended occupation, and with the Afghan who they support the terrorist group and al Qaeda, and so so, talking to the right people. They're all Taliban now, but still, you know, talking to the right people, supporting them to open uh, offices outside, whether in Ankara or Doha, endorsing that by the U.S. That sends a positive signal because we do not wish to see more casualties there. So so uh, uh, again, Syria will be an important issue, and I think today, when as uh, you know, Secretary General Ban Ki Moon called for international cooperation in Syria, it will be very important. I think weakening that four dimension of Iran, Iraq, Syria, Hezbollah is extremely crucial and important when it comes to the region there and how do we do At the same time, uh, maybe one of the you know, policy recommendations, direct intervention on the domestic issue in those countries that they have gone through the revolution will not be welcome. So what do we do? Work with the region, work with the countries from there, help the people to, to, to enhance their you know, set up their priority. Today we have heard the, 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 the leader of the Transition Council saying, uh, as an Arab, as a Muslim, we will reward those countries in Libya who have, you know, standing behind us and support us there. So I think all of these issues, it's important when we work together, we can achieve a much better result. And the Arab Israeli will come to the top of that. If we're going to see a bad result next week in, in, uh, in New York, that's not going. In fact, by our words, that demonstration of people will be in the street saying, how do you support? Uh, I was surprised to see last night in July before a lot of, you know, SMS and emails, you know, exchange between the people, let's try to push, this, try to boycott the U.S. and so because the U.S. is trying to stop that. As I said before, don't be a victim of wrong issues, that you have supported such a policy, you have adopted these things, you're the one who came up with the two-state solution, which was very much accepted by the people. People are willing to live with that, you know, and accept it <coughs> and take it as a base to enhance and, and to live in peace. You know, we have called for peace. We wanted to have a, a normalization of the relationship. So I think this is some of the issue on the top. Maybe Mara sure. we will take that. You see, I, I just wanted to
4: say one, it. Actually, prove that uh, the decision to go to hands is, uh, is rejected by Israel and Hamas. This is give you idea how how right is this, this move. Our major concern in the region is that U.S. weak, lost credibility, and in, in trouble financially. Uh, other issue in Afghanistan, Europe. and uh, this sort of. Circumstances. Our major concern, that the U.S., will give major concession to the Iranians, and all the attempt to reach to the Iranians failed because the Iranian decided not to take this, not because the United States won't. And I personally attend many meetings where the U.S. tried to convince the Iranian to cooperate on Afghanistan, at least, on some of these meetings. Earlier. If you go to Tehran today, you feel that they feel superior. They feel superior to the United States. And they feel all the five measures which are five adopted by the United States to help their uh, uh, nuclear program is not working. Basically, it's not working. You look know, at the program is uh, expanding. More uh, uh, sites built. Uh, there's more ambition, nuclear ambition. Uh, they feel that they can make uh, 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 the U.S. life uh, Hell in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and possibly in uh, Lebanon or, or other place. So basically, here we're talking about that one day the U.S. will go to talk to the Iranian. We have no problem with that. But if you go to to talk to the Iranian from a, a position of weakness, this is a major problem for us. This is a major concern. What sort of concession are you going to give to the Iranian? You going to accept their nuclear ambition? On one condition, they have capability, cre- not bomb, which is possible. Because this is what happened. The, the, what you done to, to, to the North Korean, what you done to the Indian, what you done to the Pakistani, a de facto become reality and you accept it. So the question here is part, very important for us. That in the <laughs> present position of the United States, and the Arab revolution going to make the United States much weaker than this. Today. So in the, in the weakness of the United States, then the United States could give a major consensus data. And this will have a huge impact on our security
3: and our strategic Well, I think that in the end, of course, uh, the U.S. And, and, and the GCC have tremendous amounts of, of common interests. Uh, But what needs to be done is specifically uh, that the GCC perspective and the Arab Gulf perspective needs to be taken a little bit more seriously uh, by the U.S. In the end, nobody wants to see the disintegration of Iran. Nobody wants to see Iran emerge as a nuclear power. Uh, Nobody wants to see further deterioration in Yemen. Uh, So I think on, on a whole broad, Number of issues. The common interests are there, and I think if the U.S. would engage uh, at times uh, the uh, GCC states in, in a more serious way and, uh, and listen a little bit more uh, to what their concerns and policies are, they'd find immediately willing partners. Uh, at the moment, that's
2: not the case. As, as far as I see, it. And that's where. Uh, the GCC are looking for uh, other ways and means
3: to protect their national interests. So I think a more substantive, uh, a more even-handed dialogue uh, is a necessity. I also would like to see a little bit more attention being paid to supporting the GCC as an organization. I think in the past the US has not done a good job on that front. Uh, I remember in 2003, 2004, when in time to negotiate free trade area agreements, it was done on a bilateral basis. And the U.S. negotiated with Bahrain and negotiated with Oman uh, instead of trying to do, uh, uh, do this with, with the region as a whole. Uh, and I think it's an important factor for for, for the region in the end uh, to support regional integration initiatives because this is the way uh, that you move forward on, on, on pursuing common uh, goals, on common policies, and creating greater degrees of. Census. So these are my. We can uh, remain on this particular point uh, because uh, Dr. Cotts makes an excellent point about uh, uh, limited or far
0: less appreciation of the GCC in the United States uh, than elsewhere, particularly in Europe from uh, 1987 to 2009. Uh, there were annual meetings uh, between the uh, European Union's ministers of economy, finance, and industry with their counterparts in the six DCC countries. The elusive goal was uh, a free trade agreement that would be of benefit to each side. Uh, but then with the Europeans overplaying their hand in, in, on the interference and intrusion on human rights issues and the like, Uh, They came to a a halt. The US never has had anything remotely comparable to even that. At most in the 90s, there were biannual USGCC business dialogues in the region one year, one year here. And the National Council on US Arab Relations with other organizations served as a secretariat for the USGCC Corporate Cooperation Committee of about 24 countries. Since 9/11, there's been no interest in that either, whatsoever. And uh, as you mentioned, Christian, the bilateral free trade agreements with Oman and Bahrain go in the exact opposite direction. Uh, what, um, from your side, perhaps would be feasible, possible, in taking an initiative to have a regularized strategic dialogue on these issues? Look at the information and insight. It's coming out of this discussion this afternoon, and the hard-to-come-by knowledge and understanding that hardly gets into the mainstream American media, uh, and the richness of that as it affects policies and interests and needs and concerns and foreign policy objectives. There's a there's a stage it seems without an actor or an actress or play yet to be written that would harm no one and, and benefit uh, the two sides.
1: Any. Thoughts or comments uh, in terms of the feasibility of the leadership on that issue from your side, or at least the stimulus? The more we have dialogue, the more we discuss the issue. I mean, I was saying very, I mean, most of the issues are quite clear. If we have you know, both sides sitting together, we can do a track two, one and a half, track one, you know, discuss and debate the issue, look at it from both sides, and understand. We understand when there is a U.S. decision based on their own national interest. You know, don't get me wrong, you know, we understand that international relations is based on country interest and, and, and that's very much appreciated and this time. But at the same time, maybe there are views from our side that, you know, we wish the other side would listen to. Do. <coughs> You know we'll, we'll, you know, we'll debate it. We'll, we'll try to see how do we look at it from other end. You know, we could have saved a trillion dollars for the U. S. not to be involved in Iraq, with that way they could have been a cheaper way of getting rid of that state and changing the regime there. They could have, you know, we could have kept Iraq much more stable, even with the U. S. presence in the region. You know. If you ask me today what is our security architecture in the region, it is an important security solution. We have a limited capability in the GCC, building, but we have the U.S. providing the key security dimension. So we rely, I mean, when King Abdullah said, I'm looking at the East in terms of exporting, the GCC now exports 69% of the oil, and the chemical and fertilizer to, to Southeast Asia, mainly to the four countries, India, China, Japan, and Korea. We still rely on the US and our security. The only capable forces that can tomorrow you know, uh, uh, have an immediate impact on, on our security is the US. So we understand that and we value that. This is why, because this has a great value. We feel sorry sometimes when there are decisions and policy and, and, and issues that affect these things and in the long term has a negative impact. And we look at today, how can we fix Iran? Iran, we have done we have for Iran is handing over iraq to them bringing closer to three or four country border syria saudi arabia jordan kuwait nearby bring a government which is corrupt sectarian, unreliable situation so that is the result of the, of the decision has been taken and its policy has been implemented there if this thing has been in discussion if this issue was taking place between the two we're not in favor of launching a war against Iran. We're not saying today to contain Iran, we need to launch a military attack. No. But you're saying maybe we need to work out a different set of policies. Maybe we need to work out, even with countries, like what I mentioned, they have a specific involvement. When I was asked about the Chinese position in Iran, I said, first, they don't trust the Russians. Second, why would they lose 14% of the military sales in Iran? Third, why would they lose $21 billion? billion? Fourth, why would wouldn't use Iran as a as a bargaining chip with the U.S.? So if I have a leverage over China because I'm selling a lot of oil, let's work together. And how can we use that leverage? let see with China. But if you're doing your own policy away from the region, which really impacted in the region, and I do my own policy, in the end of the day, each one works separately, and we don't work together in that. So what I'm saying is that, yes, we can bring the work together, we can bring a better understanding, um, in a different level, so, you know, uh, that we would it. and then the policy and the decision maker make in the end day, have to make the decision for the uh, the two nations. Maybe on uh, on the idea of how to
3: also support GCC in kind of dialogue and engagement. I think the EU GCC case is, is quite illustrative. Uh, yes, and they continue to be meet, uh, annual meetings.
1: it's the EU president and of the GCC president uh, every year and uh, those meetings have uh, deepened in terms of the content
3: it, it deals with. The free trade deco- area negotiations are suspended basically because uh, the GCC felt uh, that the EU was uh, always increasing the conditions. Uh, it was basically a very one-sided approach. Where the GCC states were asked to make the concessions, uh, and and the EU wasn't really uh, taking any of the GCC uh, ideas into consideration. But even despite the fact that the FTA negotiations are on hold and have not succeeded, uh, the two sides have come up, which I just mentioned in my talk briefly, is this joint action program, which now looks at uh, relations and in 14 concrete areas and, and seeing how one can support each other, uh, maybe not necessarily on, on, on the big issues, including an FDA, uh, but in more decentralized issues. Education is being one. Uh, the idea of uh, supporting uh, the establishment of uh, European Studies programs at Gulf Universities and doing the same thing at European universities in terms of focus on, uh, on golf studies. Uh, there's uh, other mechanisms that have been put in place is there's um, an effort to establish a GCC-EU clean energy network of institutions working in areas of clean and renewable energies that you can then pool resources, you can bring them together, you can see where there are projects, where there's expertise to be brought in. Uh, there's been an effort to try to uh, establish also an, what is called an INCONET, uh, a network of science and technology institutes working together. So these are also sort of functional programs where the EU uh, is looking also uh, at the gulf in terms of more of the broader goals of establishing uh, functional relationships at uh, many different levels. Uh, and the EU is increasingly ready also to support such initiatives financially, uh, and to put these forth from a
2: from a Commission uh, perspective uh, to see uh, how can we improve and establish
3: more realized uh, uh, contact between peoples at all levels the of so I think maybe there's some lessons can be drawn. I think the are indeed, and um, in
0: terms of the implications of this human resource factor and people to people and educational ties. Um, it's a comment, perhaps an indictment, that in the United States, with um, roughly 3,000 universities, uh, no more than half a dozen out of the
2: 3,000 have programs on Gulf studies. Ambassador Skip
0: Benin here heads one of them at George Washington University. Pastor Robert uh, Dry is uh, heading up one of New York University. I've been associated with them at uh, Johns Hopkins and more recently Georgetown. Princeton has one. Uh, but this, um, has something wrong with the picture when you consider that this is the one part of the planet to which the United States has mobilized more of its forces and deployed them, killed more people, spent more money, and um, become more marred in intractable conflicts than any other place on the planet. And yet, there are no more than six places out of the 3,000 institutions of higher education where one can go and study and learn what's just being uh, learned this afternoon. They have more than one, two, three students. They have more than one, two, three students. One, two, three students, yes. Yeah. Um, and the flip side of the coin, though. Is that um, in Saudi Arabia alone, there are more than 200,000 Saudi Arabian citizens who obtained their higher education degree from American universities. Indeed, every day since 1975, in Saudi Arabia's cabinet, there have been more American-trained PhDs than there have been PhDs of any kind in the U.S. cabinet, Supreme (coughs) Court, Senate, and House of Representatives combined. So, in the realm of understanding each other, rejecting empathy into each other's shoes, it could hardly be more grotesquely asymmetrical uh, with not a whole lot of leadership on the American side. This past summer, for the second year, uh, the second annual gulf research meeting took place in Cambridge uh, in the United Kingdom. There were 400 specialists there. I counted no more than four. 400 American uh, last year, 200 uh, specialists there you know, counted on more than four of them Americans. something radically wrong with this uh, particular picture. And the European countries have shown a degree of interest in enlightenment with the Euro-Med dialogue. They're hungry. They're like Avis, the National Budget, know, going to Alamo, chasing after the number one slot. But there's not zero interest here, but certainly very little. And I would invite either Ambassador Ganim or Rob Dry to to comment if they like, because they they have the, the handfuls of Americans who are taking what everyone has been talking about this afternoon this afternoon very seriously. Uh, I'm just putting uh, Ambassador Ganim on, on the spot, or no Rob Dry either uh there.
4: Yes, okay. You Yes, I want to say that uh, in our relation with the United States, we have two things: like the United States, we have interest, and we have our legitimacy as a government. No one can put the clock back now. Since the beginning of this year, you have countries which the revolution was successful. You have a country which the revolution is ongoing revolution. We have countries that demand a huge in the street, and we have uh, countries which still come. But as a government, I can't feel, you know, the pressure of the street. Legitimacy is no longer, you know, as uh, U.S. legitimacy or, or family legitimacy. Uh, so, it's the question of, now, whenever you talk to the United States, they're saying, you know, the uh, Israeli government cannot deliver because the Israeli people against this policy or against this decision. Well, I can use the, exactly the same language now. Even in the country, which is not, the revolution is not successful. The Saudi cannot take decision now against the people. You know, you have now, it's not necessarily I have people on the street. I have the internet. I have every, all the means that are going to undermine my credibility as a government. So the question here is, is, is that I have interest I have a credibility, and I have legitimacy, and when you have deal with me, you have to understand uh, I have to keep all these things, you know, uh, and protect myself uh, Yes, yes.
5: yes. His yeah. <coughs> Majesty King Hussein saying one side the best. When I go to sleep at night, when I wake up in the morning, I think about the United States. When everyone in America goes to sleep at night, including most of those in elected office, They get up in the morning and they don't think about the Middle East. John, we have a hierarchy of decision making in the United States that is more absurd than any hierarchy of decision making in the Middle East when it comes to each other. End of story. Um, uh, Dr. Dr. John Duke Anthony?
2: Yes,
5: uh, um, boss. You promoted me. I I wasn't a (laughs) formal ambassador. I was a Long-term charge after 9/11 in Oman when we last met, and I defer to Ambassador Gaineema on a lot of these issues. But one of the, one of the big problems with the United States uh, in the Gulf region is, you know, frankly, I think there is a desire to we, we all understand in the government that this is the most strategically important region on the planet. There's no question about the importance of energy. It's, all, it's going to be that way. You look at any CIA study, it's going to be that way. And I think every national security expert in the United States knows that. In fact, almost anywhere in the world. But it was evident during the Arab Spring, the United States is always going to stand for democracy. And we looked and we saw democratic movements underway. And we didn't necessarily see this kind of thing in the Arab Gulf. Jeffrey Feldman was sent out there, others were sent out to the region, basically saying, you guys have got to change. You, you've got to become more progressive. You, you've got to institute greater political participation. Uh, it's not necessarily in, it's not in your interest not to do this. It's in all of our collective interests for you all to make these changes. That's the, sort of the concern out there. I don't know, Ambassador Ghani, and we, we look for, uh, as policymakers, or we used to, I am mean, we now from foreign service, but we look for change. The USGCC dialogue, we wanted to see change. We didn't see that change. It was slow in coming. Um, maybe the EU is more tolerant. The United States is not all that tolerant. Um, Oman and Bahrain were keen to do trade agreements because they're small economies. And of course, they would be welcome. They wel- they're well, they much more uh, welcome on an, on an economic basis than necessarily for, for example, Saudi Arabia. But um, the GCC as an entity needs to open up, needs to change, needs to reform. And those are the kind of things, I think, that will make a <laughs> much more resilient and stronger GCC, which will increase, uh, our credibility in the region, their credibility in the, uh, in the world, and, and so on and so forth. I've said a lot, and too much, but <laughs> that was my
6: comment. Thank you. John, I'd have to say that, that I think you actually expressed it very well, and, uh, my and my friend did as well. I think that the problem that has been that the United States uh, this simply doesn't pay, pay that much attention to the Gulf. Now. I do. Others who serve in the Gulf do. Those in the government who deal in, like in the Bureau, do. But in terms of, uh, if you ask, and, and you all have expressed it, if, if I ask my colleagues in <coughs> Kuwait or in other countries in the region, what they immediately say is, you know, we have not the president in a year uh, or whatever, and that would be a year in which a lot had happened in that region uh, where there should have been. Uh, there's not much attention when it's into crisis. Uh, and I, I have to say that I think when we, when we get to Bahrain, you find the confusion in American policy as to what to do between interests, <coughs> back to the <coughs> area, which are clear and easily understood. Uh, friendship, the Navy, uh, government's been very close to America and our views about democracy and the clear need for change in, in that particular. And, and again, I think the United States government just doesn't grapple well with this and ends up focusing on other issues. And I, and I, I, I think I do have to say honestly, uh, and it was also uh, mentioned, is that our policies is the Israel and the Palestinian community. Uh, many Arab governments in course Turkey like ISIL recently has made it very clear Consequences and costs. The problem with that is that we've heard it for four or five decades that there was going to be a collapse in our relationship with Arab states because of our, our policy in Palestine, and it hasn't happened because of that reason. But my point being is that he, what happens then in Washington is to discount those kinds of comments, and that means we carry on our policies if we don't pay attention what's being said. In my, my observation would be that the region is changing and that is not likely to take out of the country if we don't pay attention to what we're doing. Thank
1: you. I think two points here maybe would just like One, part of the mistakes is ours. In the region, we don't make enough effort in coming to Washington, talking to the policy maker, decision maker to the institution, explaining to them, debate with them, and have attack two, attack one, also debating that one, whereby we can explain our interests and we understand, as I said, you know, we are quite pragmatic also. If you think American are pragmatic, I mean, trust the Arab are more pragmatic than that one. They, they will quickly figure out, you know, what is their interest in that. So I think bringing through that sort of debate also, so there is, uh, you know, uh, something to blame ourselves for, for so not coming forward. And, and finding the proper way and if we do sometimes we they go to the other organization. They don't need to go to the other organization, they need to talk the other need to talk the other to talk with, uh in the, the on the other hand, I think there is also you have a strong winning card, you're not using it. Because you know the dependency of the region a lot in the US. Why don't you use that leverage by encouraging them, as the uh different there say, encouraging them to to sue the matter but not in a not in a public. I mean I always remember when Secretary Rice she came to Saudi Arabia once and she had replaced the foreign minister and there was a question about reforms that she wanted to take that and she said, this is an internal issue, we deal with that. Outside has nothing to do with that. Yes, when it comes very publicly that way. It does not encourage the other. The other will respond to it in an extremely positive way when they feel that the other side cares about their interests. They wanted a good, you know, uh, uh, for that country and the people. Definitely, they will have a better response. And I'm sure in many cases, there have been a good advice from um, ex-US official to a uh, uh, good ruler in the region. And they have listened to their advice and they have done something. Now, is the changes in the region the same speed that the people wish inside and the people outside wish, I'm not so sure. I think here we have a problem because of the speed, of, I mean the bureaucracy, We're talking about bureaucracy, and the time that it takes, it does take time. So we cannot, are they willing to move very quickly and do the changes? No. You know, if they, if they have the leisure to take it easy, they will. But if there is persistence, if there is a proper, you know, channel and, and that one, if we pursue it in a way, Based on the people in this So I'm sure we will get somewhere. And you uh, know, again, learning from the history and from the different, well, I think there's a very lesson that can tell us that ultimately there's a persistence and there's continuation and there's support. If they use that positive leverage and the state of the U.S., it will help uh, a lot. I just want to say.
4: What what <coughs> the outcome of this Arab revolution? First, as I said in the beginning, you have a new government which will not easily go to the United States. But the remaining government, they look at Mubarak, who is our Abin Ali, who is a friend of the United States. United States worship the, the American with their hand immediately and let them. So if I am ruling in any country, saying, OK, what the value of United States legitimacy, what the what United States support? Absolutely nothing for me anymore. We now on the verge of you know, of a new new era in the relation of the government relation to the United States. If you are not if you did, never done anything to protect Mubarak, we've done a lot of things to the United States, okay why are you going to protect me tomorrow? I have to go now my legitimacy hundred percent with my people. Not with the United States. United States have no value. United States legitimacy, support for me has no value. And we see now the Arab country divided into two. The one who went, went through the revolution and their policy toward the United States going to be judged by the people. And the one who remained in power, you, you have no value now for United States support. So you are not going to listen to the United States in any case no. So US policy in the region going to go through a very difficult uh, 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 period. The question here about why we've not promote democracy in the, in the Gulf region, well, in the last ten years we have two examples of US policy toward the region. They forced the Algerian to have an election. When the election won a fair election by the way, won by the Islamists, well the US handed three hundred degrees. They cancelled the, the election. And the same the same with Hamas. I'm not a lover of Hamas. But nobody object that saying Hamas election was rough or, or unfair. So why you want me now, you should turn the whole policy now and tell me you have to, to be a democratic. I'm going to ask four um, questions here and you can
0: take a pick which one you want to, to answer. What is the likelihood of a successful dialogue with Iran? What would it take to make such a dialogue possible? Uh, could the panel say a
2: word about Saudi Arabia's succession, uh, King Abdullah in particular?
0: Arrangements of prognostications And how would one assess the cooperation between the U.S. and the GCC in the ongoing war on terrorism?
2: And how has this in any way affected the overall U.S. GCC relationship? And what should
0: be an appropriate, realistic U.S. reaction to and relationship with the growing force of
1: political Islam? in the context of the Arab Spring that you indicated? That's a good question. We can choose from that. I think negotiation with Iran. Number one, unless Iran come out with a very clear, friendly attitude and much more transparent attitude, we feel that negotiation with Iran is a waste of time because they have bank on using the time as an element to enhance their program. They went from 3% to 20 percent enrichment. They went from number of centrifuge to a much more larger. They went from developing their, uh, you know, rocket system. They've used the time also to enhance that. So time, they've used that quite well, and they were very happy with that. But what do we need to have as an effective policy? I think we need to say, you know, two issues. There. You know, we've had an initiative in 2004, we started in GRC saying, a Gulf free zone of WMD that will lead from sub region to region, from the Gulf to the whole Middle East, because we realize Middle East you know, started in the 70s and then again was, you know, uh, many years was started by the Egyptian, then the Iranian and the Egyptian in the 70s, and it did not work. But maybe having a regional free zone of WMD whereby we push the Iran <laughs> to signature signatory to that, since they have already their signature in the MBT, our worry is today, if Iran does not respect and they become Uh, 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 an owner of capability, that will say goodbye to the NPT in the region because why would this will make the region stick to the NPT and stick to that agreement? And at the same time, it may push toward an unhappy situation because some of the countries in the region, they might think of the three alternatives, building their own capability, having a joint dual usage, or, you know, go and seek for for, for an, an umbrella. When Secretary Clinton she mentioned her last year, I think trip to uh, Thailand, she said the United States may consider a security umbrella in the region. She did not use the word of nuclear. She, you know, also she used the word of uh, uh, security umbrella. We did not like, it, honestly, not because we didn't want to have the support of the U.S., but because we thought this, this is a de facto. It means you are willing to accept Iran nuclear program. And as a defector, you're going to provide you with an umbrella in that. And this is not an acceptable to us. What we need to do is to stop that before happening and the consequences of that. So getting back into the point, as long as you have hostile approach from, from Iran, which in last year, the times time, they have talked about waving out the country, waving out the country, removing it from the map, you know, as they used for the United Arab Emirates in that way, claiming that Bahrain still is theirs and they wanted to be Bahrain. and talking about closing the state of Paris, doing all these issues that are related to security. This is, not, this is not an approach where you can sit and talk in that way. We understand they wanted to have a fully grand bargain with the US. And I hope the US will not fall into that trap. So I'm sure the US will understand the interest quite well. And at the same time, looking are us we have a strong alliance for you in the region, and at the same time, getting into a proper discussion with Iran will be quiet. A much more seriousness, a much more serious approach, a much more effective approach to the appointment. I think I will just mention uh, the issue of, of the uh, succession in Saudi Arabia. You know, being an outsider, you always look into the inside of Saudi Arabia and say, what is the succession in Saudi Arabia? I'm a Saudi and understand it because I live there in the country. For me, the father has appointed already the son, and the son already in position. Look at the five key departments. Look at that. look at the royal court. Look at the the, the foreign ministry. Look at the Saudi intelligence. Look at the the, the uh, ministry of defense, the national guard. The sons are already there in position. Interior, two of them, three of them, there also in the second generation. So in reality, the key municipality, so the key ministers, in fact, there is the second generation already is in operation. It have already been trained by the parents. As a respect in our culture, no son will take over his father's position. While his father is still alive and functioning, he might be not functioning fully. He might be just one percent of his functionality, but still, the son, as a respect, will keep that position. And uh, and that is the understanding. You know, we have four major committees with the U. S. One in defense, one in intelligence, one in security and counterterrorism, one in economics, affairs, and you know, and they're all functioning. You know, the, nothing has been disturbed in those committees, and and the discussion and the regular meetings taking place there. So it it doesn't worry us. Today, uh, you know, you can get a long time, but still, you know, it doesn't really ask, you know, who is the second or third coming into that one. There is the whole structure of the allegiance of councils that have been well-structured, saying how the power will be transferred from one to another one. It might be awarded from the outside, world, it's like for the Omani, for instance, when they say, we didn't know who's the crown prince in Oman, we didn't know if the Sultan Qaboos guy who will come. I think there is a formula. We're not too much worried about that. You know, the outside world, because they like to see more of a checkpoint, you know, how to, how to go about it. We have our own way, you know, center of understanding the domestic issue. Uh, on, the, on, on the, you know, on the political Islam, I, I, powerful, that, but I think you need to be careful how the new Muslim Brotherhood have sold themselves to the West. They sold themselves with the, with the basic two ideas. One, ideology is separate from the political life. And this is, you know, this has taken place through the big conference that took place in Istanbul, and all Muslim brothers have participated, including even Hamas, they participated in that meetings, and so uh, I hope we don't replace, uh, you know, uh, a fanatic Hezbollah by another Hezbollah. We need to make sure that uh... you know who comes into the power because if you ask me today yes I am in favor of the change in Syria I wanted to see reforms take place I wanted to see regime change in Syria but at the same time my biggest worry is who's coming who's taking over in Syria um, by the way as a policy issue I think we all need to send a clear signal to the military in Syria that if they perform if they do well they're appreciated we're not against them you know we are in support of what they do because they support the people that's a very important message because nobody is sending message to the Syrian military establishment yet. so my words here on the on the political Islam the replacement and how quick and who's gonna come is because we've seen those people fighting in Libya fighting in Syria they're going to claim part of the sexes they don't, they don't they will never accept to be part of the scene they're going to claim their share of the sexes and that's also put a big question uh, you see, you have to, actually I have
4: been involved for many years and studying political Islam. Islam is different from Christianity or Judaism. Islam is a political religion. Prophet, the Prophet was a head of a state when he died. He appointed leaders, uh, governors. Uh... So we're talking about to say that Islam is, must be separated from, from politics. I don't think this is, I, people saying that they cannot understand Islam. Mosque always was the, 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 the function of the state in the mosque. The declaration of the new khalifa, new ruler, appointment. So again, the mosque is a center of activities. So the question of whether, I, am, I, I wish to see a secular state. I don't think religion has to do anything with politics. But in Islam, it's becoming impossible. See, after all these years, we tried to kill Islam as a political power by the new, by the dictatorship, by everything. We reach a point now that you know we went a full circle. Now who leading the fight in Libya? I know that many of them, they were in prison and recently. And not because they are moderate Islam, because they are extremist Islam. Mm-hmm. Abdul Hakim Balhaj was you know, well known. Uh, he fought in Afghanistan. And he is the one who entered Tripoli. The same in Syria. Who is protecting the
2: demonstrator now? Okay, we have the Syrian claiming that there's a
4: fire, somebody firing from the demonstration. Muslim Brotherhood is not denying that. They're saying it's a self-defense. We try to defend the the, the, the the people protesting in the street from the shooting from the forces. But those people are Islamists. So the question of uh, uh, avoiding Islam and, and we're talking about pure, pure secular state. I think we passed this stage. The problem what sort of Islam we have to accept as a partner. Uh, and in the last few years the British, not the American necessarily, tried to promote Muslim brotherhood. The British theory, which I partly accept, that you have to fight Islam with Islam. You cannot kill Islam. Then you have to fight you have to fight moderate Islam, the, the, the extreme Islam, with moderate Islam. And Muslim Brotherhood would basically identify a group which could base, participate in the political process, like Jordan, we have a, a full participation. At the same time, they have to respect democracy. And they have to, we have to accept, expect, accept them as a partner. So I, I think the Arab Revolution uh, brought again uh, political Islam as a power, uh, and the political Islam, as I said in the beginning, they will be very careful in supporting the United States policy in the region. No. The question of terrorism. Terrorism becomes manageable threat. It is still a threat. But for us, it's manageable threat. Apart from Yemen. You look at the Saudi Arabia, Gulf uh, State, uh, other countries. You have, you have the problem in Iraq and Afghanistan. We don't have it dealing with terrorism. But you see, in Islam you have the, the Salafis, the extremists, jihadis, takfiris, kul. Cool. Now even the Salafis are reforming themselves. You look at the Salafis in Egypt, review, they review their idea. You look at the Salafis in, 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 in Libya. You look at the Salafis in, in Morocco. So now even the Salafis move. They are feeling after Bin Laden and all the failure and that Al-Qaeda's influence is declining. They feel that their ideology needs to be reviewed. So yes, we're going to face terrorism because terrorism coming from extremism, but political situation, I can give you a very simple example now. Now if, if, uh, if the Palestinians going to declare the state, and you have a celebration 10, 20, 100,000 Palestinian in the street, they going to repeat what happened in Cairo and Tunisia. Power, you, the people, you know, the power of the people. What the Israelis are going to do? How much you can kill? So the question here is now: we have, we are on the verge of a new era where government is not important. People now have a major power to play. And this, this sort of, if the Israelis are going to react as we're witnessing now in, 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 in Syria, you're going to have a new, new wave of terrorism. Not necessarily Islamic terrorism. Uh,
3: just a, a comment, I agree uh, completely with everything that was said, just uh, maybe a comment on the, you know, the relations with Iran. I, mean, I also don't see any possibility at the moment for a dialogue to be uh, successful. From, as far as the GCC and the Arab states are concerned, I mean, nobody denies it. Iran has legitimate interests in, in the region and that uh, numerous GCC policy officials have said that uh, Iran has a predominant role we to play in the North region. Uh Nobody denies it uh, from the GCC side that Iran has the right to develop uh, civilian nuclear technology. Uh, but of course here we want transparency, we want to know what the program uh, is about. And I think there's no denial that the Arab Gulf states want to have a friendly relationship uh, uh, with Iran. As I mentioned before, there's a lot at stake, there's a lot to lose if if we were to have another conflict situation in in the Gulf. But I think there's just a simple case, And until Iran also begins to accept the GCC states as equal partners in the region, and not simply starts, keeps on looking down on them as simply being puppet regimes propped up by an external military power, but
1: begins to take them seriously. And I hear that, and I always bring up the example of the uh, the island issue,
3: the the dispute over the islands with the UAE. Uh, I mean, the UAE wants to talk and and have negotiations, and the Iranians simply keep on referring to this issue as a misunderstanding, uh, as if the Emiratis don't understand the problem, that they don't comprehend this. And I think until we have a change of attitude from the Iranians on that front, uh, and quit having this uh, uh, talking down. Uh, to, the, to the Gulf Arabs, then
0: I don't see any chance of that. Last question, we'll focus geographically in the opposite direction of Iran, namely Yemen. Um, Mustafa uh, spoke at some length about uh, the war on terrorism and the challenges there. In America's media uh, visited here recently but regularly refers to Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and Yemen being the number one terrorist threat, etc. Um, if we could uh, uh, focus on Yemen for a bit and keep in context uh, the following, amongst other constants. A country of 130,000 villages, of uh, fewer than 200 residents in each. You live in a village of just 200, 000, 200 people, you have no school, you have no hospital. you have no clinic, you have no sewage, you have no electricity, so uh, you might be lucky if you have a functioning water system. In many instances, not only do you not have a paved road, you don't have a, grade, a graded approach. Uh, the poverty is massive. Uh, it's deep and pervasive. Uh, the unemployment situation is the worst of any in the Eastern Arab world. The poverty situation, the water situation, the shortage of natural resources, uh, hardly leave the country bereft of a uh, blemish its blemish run amok. As uh, Gulf countries, how do you look at Yemen? How is this audience to, through you, vicariously understand the challenge that Yemen represents to you, for you, right now and for the foreseeable
1: future? For us, there's you know three key threats in Yemen that is important. First, I wanted to repeat that Yemen security, Yemen responsibility is not only the GCC country, the Gulf country, and primarily Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia have contributed significantly to the economy of Yemen. It's unfortunate due to the complicity of the problem there, we share more than 1,300 kilometres, I think, miles, maybe that's 850 miles, uh, you know, a border with Yemen every day between five to seven thousand people been arrested in the border trying to cross illegally the border with Saudi Arabia uh, most of the now we have they have 20,000 Somalis as a refugee in Yemen and these Somalis they are trying also to cross the border there's a lot of trafficking drugs al-qaeda uh, you know have taken a serious decision after the Saudi being able to contain activity in Saudi Arabia. They moved to Yemen. They wanted to use the villages, they want to use Yemen as a training base to launch attack against Saudi Arabia because they said that people, you know, have been receptive to us and cooperative and it's easy to deal with the small villages and the people there. The massive number of, you know, uh, handguns in the people's hand there is quite scary there to see. But at the same time, I think there is a great cooperation between the Saudi Arabia in particular and the rest of the GCC country with the United States in fighting terrorism. And I think the example, the last example of the printer moving from Yemen to Dubai and from Dubai to a uh, plane coming to the United States, have shown that clear cooperation and clear uh, uh, coordination between all sides. And I think. It has two, two two different unilaterally and multilaterally between the two sides and also with other countries with other countries involved in that way. That have done a lot. I think I will add this sort some to my colleagues to say, but maybe I wanted to add one important issue: if we coordinate the effort in Yemen, containing uh, dealing with the terrorism issues, but also the development and the aid. The current situation in Yemen, we have three sort of danger. We have the Houthist uh, in trying to do their own things being supported by the outside and so. We have the service group that they wanted to have the South and the Shabwa area and no? And we have the terrorist, so the three dangers are remaining there. And above that, we have the whole humanity side. The poverty, the food, the water, the gas, the drugs, all these issues that we need to deal with that. If we don't collectively work together in Yemen to contain that, it's going to be another Afghanistan, and it's already, because Yemen today are being used as a platform for incubation, for training, and for exporting, you know, threat and terrorism to the other countries. So, even when we go through the aid program, if we put our act together, and we have a joint, you uh, know, act together, seeing the destination, working together, trying to convince them better education, more enlightenment, uh, you know, a crop that they can grow and we buy it from them, you know, enhance their economy, create jobs for them inside there. I think that would be the way that we can see a much more GCC-US collaboration over Yemen. And not just everybody working alone. You have a hundred million dollar program, you are going to go to villages, try to implement it. They have a billion dollar program, they're going to build a road that has no connection to that sort of villages. Okay, imagine if you go to villages and try to help the people by providing them with knowledge first, so give them the right seed, the right fertilizer, build up the coal storage, provide them transport line, give the tax that carry the goods, they produce and the product they have to other market, guarantee other market destination for them. They will have hope in that one. And I think we need to see much more stronger hope than uh, the, the, uh, you know what they have at the level.
4: See, if we neglect Yemen, I just recently was in Yemen. We're going to have a combination of of Afghanistan and Somalia today. This is how Yemen is moving Economic failure, security failure. But in Yemen, the situation, people have to understand that the present government of Ali Abdullah Saleh still enjoys support. This is what I can see. Yemen, again, is not a national movement, it's an opposition movement. Opposition tried to dislodge the, the present government, but the question of of, of terrorism, uh, as as Mr. Uh, mentioned, you have two attacks since 9/11 which tried to reach the U.S. mainland. Both of them in Yemen, the Nigerian Abdulmutallab, who arrived here actually, you know, the plane, but there was a technical problem with this bomb, <laughs> and you have uh, the the question of printer, which is destined to United States, both of them in different different cities. So Yemen has become not a Yemeni uh, the tourism in Yemen is not a question of Yemeni's issues. It's not a question only regional issue, because the Yemeni's uh, structure, it is basically responsible for nine state. Uh, This is a new structure of Al-Qaeda. al Qaeda a new structure before the death of bin Laden. Uh, basically, you have three new structure on regional base. You have the North African Command, which is responsible for the command in North Africa plus south of, of Europe. And the reason why they put uh, uh, a regional uh, uh, command instead of state command previously, because their resources become less and less. They have to gather all the resources and to be more strong. So that you have the North African Command, you have the Arabian Peninsula, which is responsible for operation in Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and to theoretically the other GCC state. You have the Pakistan-Afghanistan command, which is responsible even to India. So you have you have this sort of, of, of command, and the Yemeni command is the most active, the most... Uh, 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 you have the, I never seen uh, people clever in bomb-making bomb and planning as much as what you have in Yemen. They are the elites of Al Qaeda now based in Yemen. So the question in, in, in uh, is Yemen, regional responsibility, is no. It is international responsibility. And uh, until recently, the United States giving only $50 million uh, uh, dollar to Yemen every year. This is what the United States gave. Oman giving $250 million. And the US was giving $50 million, and the great majority of this money going to counter-terrorism. You cannot fight terrorism in isolation of other issues. Terrorism has its roots in the economy and the unemployment. And so you cannot fight terrorism in isolation of other issues. And in Yemen is a, a, a typical example. I'll thank uh, several people here. The, um, these three individuals are like walking
2: encyclopedias. And it's been a cerebral massage and a seminar from which none of us graduate, we all get into place. But they, they didn't just happen to be in the neighborhood and drop
0: by. Uh, the Near East South Asia the Center for uh, Security Strategic Studies at the National Defense University has had a big hand in bringing them here. And those on the Hill that have worked with the National Council and with Patrick Mancino, uh, Executive Vice President who worked here, uh, helping to bring this apart
2: is due all credit as well. And for the panelists, it's rare that a group as full as this audience was when you began is one third as
0: full by the end of two hours. It's almost as full as it was when you began, that's a tribute to the three of you. Thank you, all great.